to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. We uh, are entering in in the Psalms to what what they consider wisdom or poetic literature. So um, the wisdom literature, books of the Bible, uh, you've got Job, you've got Psalms, you've got Proverbs, you've got Ecclesiastes, you've got Song of Solomon. Uh, Psalms is part of the wisdom literature, but not every single one of the Psalms is considered wisdom literature. Um, Not that people would hardline and say it's not wisdom from God, but they would say some are more on the poetic nature. And so it's part of the wisdom literature, but also poetic. And so um, poetic in style. And so uh, the Psalms are a little bit different, okay? So as we go through this, um, if we were going to do four or five weeks or maybe eight weeks on Psalms, um, we're not going to, but if we were, um, I'd want you to think through um, a little bit different style in the writing and the author's intent. And what I mean by that is they're meant to stretch us. Like I said, they're poetic, um, but um, they're not necessarily linear. So what we get used to in our thinking in Western... um, Uh, American thinking, but also just the Western uh, part of the world is a very um, linear type thinking, a linear type of teaching, linear types of lessons. That's what our curriculums are usually uh, based upon that. So when you think through uh, many of maybe Paul's epistles or John's books in the Bible, um, they're taught out in in that type of um, uh, linear fashion. And so um, when you get to the poetic parts of Scripture, Um, it's not necessarily so clearly linear. And so what I mean by that, let me give you an example. So um, if if, if we were to go to, first of all, just the Proverbs, we're not going to, but Proverbs, um, the writer says, pause, go, take a pen, piece of paper, go sit in a field. Literally, it says, go sit in a field. Go and watch the ant. Consider the ant. There you go. Go learn about God by sitting in a field and taking notes on an ant. And God goes, you as humans would learn much from that. Now, does that fit us? I mean, are we, are we going like, oh, that sounds great. Like, theology class 101. Like, no way. I don't like sitting on the ground for anything. My wife loves, like, she loves the idea of, the, like, you know, putting out a blanket and doing a uh, little, little uh, you know, what do you call those things? A picnic. Uh, like, I'm just since, like, I was 20, I don't like sitting on the ground. And so I'm always hot and sweaty. I literally, anytime we go to those kind of carnivals, I'm looking around going, like, is, every, is anyone else like me miserable here? Like, is, is everyone else miserable and they're just faking it? And, and so I like to go sit and then to think through and watch an ant. But God wanted us to really consider that. So look at, look at, look, you, can, you don't have to turn here. Let me read just Psalm 18. Um, another place, so we're, we're talking about this idea before we dive into Psalm 73, the way that we should approach the Psalm. So when you're having quiet times, um, you know, hey, you know what? I haven't been in God's word, hadn't been praying. Hey, we're in this season where we're praying and we're getting the scriptures. I'm just going to you know, do the old open up the Bible and point and, and you land somewhere. You're going to have a little quiet time. And so Psalm uh, 18 Listen to verses 3 through 7. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God, and I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. And you're going, what's going on there? How am I supposed to consider that? To be honest, I was just trying to have a quiet time because, I mean, if we're really honest, like our washer's kind of acting up. 
And I was kind of thinking like, hey, God, it'd help out if you'd either fix that miraculously or, or send us the money. So I was going to kind of have this little quiet time, hopefully get an answer on our washer needing being fixed. And, and this got like super dramatic. Like all I was wanting was some answers on what we should do about our washer. And this guy's talking about something ensnaring him and wrapping around him. And so, so just notice the language there is a lot different. And so what, what's the writer's intent there? It's meant to make us pause and think differently than Paul's epistles or some of the New Testament books that, that, that just almost live based on, um, based on here's the truth, therefore we should live this way. Based off of the gospel, flowing out of the, the, the gospel. So you always get the truth part first. Here's what Christ has done. Here's what God has done in your sake to provide righteousness, forgiveness of sins, atonement. Therefore, go live this way. And, and remember that for generations, for a couple generations, it was kind of taught, go live this way, you know, and almost like earning salvation. But, but we know now that it's a better form to look at those things, that, that those truth and those principles and flowing out of that. Therefore, since I have been changed, since the gospel has changed me, since Christ has redeemed me, I should therefore live this way. But that's different than this. So as we go into Psalm 73, I just want you to be aware of that. He's, he's kind of saying, come with me. Just, just walk with me for a while. Slow down. Ponder these things. Be contemplative. And some of you may just go like, I, I just, that's just not me. Like whether it's you know, high school, college, or job, career, like that's just not me. Like, I, I don't like that. And so, but that, that's a beautiful part of God's um, diversity, just, just in God himself, just the creative nature that he is, that he, he can write these beautiful linear objective truths, but also he's this, this beautiful creative um, just writer that, that has beautiful poetry all leading and pointing to him. And so uh, you have to consider the Psalms like that um, just as a precursor. Um, this psalm, and many like it, um, is seeing, uh, so what the psalmist is seeing and what the psalmist is experiencing at the moment may not be consistent with what we think God would have for us. So many times you see in the psalms, the psalmist is crying out, the writer is crying out, whether that's David who wrote a lot of them, Asaph, different writers, um, they're crying out in response to what's going on around them. They're seeing things, they're hearing things, they're, they're experiencing different things, and they're crying out from that human element. So that's a beautiful thing. So spend some time in the Psalms because it starts out usually, instead of from God's perspective, a lot of times it starts out from the human experience and then raises its head to look at God's, God's, um, God's justification of things and God's um, perspective on matters. So that's helpful as you go into the Psalms. Um, we've heard that God is good and loves his people, right? We've heard God is good, loves his people. We've heard that evil and wickedness will be punished. Goodness will be rewarded. So what happens when all you see as you look around and when all you experience as you're, you're seeing things happening and you're hearing things on the news and you're seeing Twitter updates and you're seeing things on Instagram and the news that the good life is being completely rewarded to those who live as if God doesn't exist. Rewards and riches and prosperity is all going to all those people. And for those of us who would not live the life, so who are trying to live for God, we're not experiencing that. In fact, it seems like we're losing and we're losing and we're losing and we're losing. And so this psalm deals with that. Um, that perspective is what, why God gives us Psalm 73. And, and in this, it's not even dealing with the aspect of the problem of evil. So if, if you study apologetics or you've probably read about the problem of evil, which is you know, since God is um, all-knowing, he knows everything, um, and then since he is all-powerful, he would be able to change things, he's able to do whatever he'd want, but also he's all-loving, then why does evil exist? Right? So that's the problem of evil back from the Enlightenment period. If God is all-knowing and he knows horrible things are happening and God is all-powerful, he could change that, but yet his essence is goodness and love, then why does evil exist? And they would posit, atheists would posit, therefore there must not be a God, right? Because there is evil, we know there's evil, there must not be an all-loving 
all-knowing, all-powerful God, because if he did exist, he would change that. Well, this psalm even takes it a step further. It's not only that, but the evil is the ones that are, the evil and the wicked, they're the ones who are prospering. So where is God? Not only the first step, if there is evil, but where is God when evil and wickedness is, is the thing that's turning into the good life? And those who would follow God are miserable and broken and humbled and brought low and not being rewarded in this life. So that's what we're going to see here in this psalm. So it's a beautiful psalm. Um, we may not say it out loud. We may even be afraid to admit that we think it, but it leads us to this eternal place of, does God really love me if he let this happen to me? So in our circle, sometimes... Um, we're going to get into this later on in the sermon, but um, some people don't take what they're experiencing and follow and connect the dots, A, B, C, D, and admit that I guess my problem is I don't feel like God loves me. So we're going to deal with that a little bit today. Some, sometimes in our circles, people feel that way for a long time. They, they, they know about God's sovereignty, and we, we stress so much sometimes uh, man's depravity, man's depravity, man's depravity, that it becomes this beat down, beat down, beat down, and people can't lift their head up. It's not good news. All we hear is bad news. And that's a tendency sometimes in our circles where almost the goal is to make you feel so pitiful and so ridiculous. Of course God doesn't love us. Look how bad we are. And so I want to let you know that's not the good news. That, that's not the full news. That's just the bad news. In fact, he wants to lift our gaze up and, and rejoice in a Savior because we know that he come to change us. And that's not the end of us. And so um, let me pray, and then we'll dive off into Psalm 73. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together together. Um, we do thank you that you are the one who um, interrupts our thinking and reminds us that we are a broken people. Since Adam and Eve, we are a broken, fallen people, that sin has corrupted every element of our thinking. Even as believers, Father, we still have the struggle of sin in our hearts, Father. While the Holy Spirit is present in us, just like Paul would say, I, I know what I should be doing, and yet I don't do that. So this ongoing struggle with sin can be so defeating. But you remind us also, not only of our sin, but you remind us of the great news that you are the one who can change us. You are the one who has saved us from that. You have redeemed us from that. You have forgiven us. That you also have freed us from the power of sin. That we don't have to choose sin when we're tempted, but that there is righteousness and holiness that we can walk in from Christ. Would you help us to remember that today? Would you help us to learn from what Asaph writes here? Would you help us to be careful on what we see and what we hear and what we feel. Would you help us to be reminded of your truth above all those things? In your name we pray. Amen. So let's look at Psalm 73 here. Um, and, and I want you to see first just this, this driving conviction. So if you're on your device or your Bible, I have to turn back over there now. Um, Psalm 73. He says in the first verse, Truly God is good. So just right there, is he? Is he really good? This week, what you went through, was that what your heart was screaming? By the way, he knows what your heart was screaming. You can give the good Sunday school answer. Yes, yes, God was good. Well, Monday, why were you crying and screaming and throwing a fit on how, how pitiful everything was? Because that's what I was doing Monday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. But do your Sunday school answer. We'll all smile at you. Shake your hand. God is good. Is he all good? If we're not careful in the church, that's what we, we expect to come to church or go to classes and, and hear good um, kind of uh, platitudes. And we don't want to get real. Asaph's getting very real. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So that's a conviction. And that, that, that conviction is significant because there's at least three, if not more, types of people. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll begin to think this. That one of the types of people would just be, God is good if I get what 
I want. And sadly, in Tulsa, there's a lot of places in America and other places that we teach that God is good because, because, because he gives us what we want. So he's a genie in a bottle. So some people view God is good as long as I get what I want. Also, people kind of view God as good like, kind of like insurance. Everyone love their insurance? Insurance is good, right? We all love that. Paid in tens of thousands for 10 years. We had a wreck and it cost them $1,000 to fix that. And now they're going to up my standard. I don't understand how that all works. So insurance is good. Yeah, I mean, it's useful, right? So some people, that, that's how good God is to them. Um, some people view it as, it seems like some people are experiencing God as good, just not me. And that may be you. Seems like he is experiencing God as good, but not necessarily me. And then also you got people who truly are rejoicing and enjoying the fact that God is good. And you see their life being ripped apart and they're still screaming, God is good. And you see them go through difficulty and tragedy and still, God is good. What you hear them proclaim, not every moment. It doesn't mean that they, they're not like Asaph, that there's times going, I don't know what's going around. I don't know what's going on around me, but I know God is good. So it's important to have that conviction at the first. So he says that God is good. And notice it's, you know, it's when he says this to Israel. So anytime if you're reading through the, the Old Testament, you know that Israel was God's chosen people, but they were a geographic nation state. And so we know since Christ has come under the new covenant, that's now speak, those things, those promises are made to his church also, right? So we are the true Israel. We are in Abraham's lineage, even though most of us aren't Jewish, right? And there are people in Abraham's lineage that are not saved or redeemed, right? So they're not the true Israel. When God was speaking to this, those who are pure in heart, that's the faithful. The Jewish people who are faithful God-fearers, didn't even know about Jesus yet, and then all of us beyond the cross who are part of the new Israel. We are our God's faithful, the ones who had looked to him. So God is good to the faithful, but it's not a matter of earning. And that throws us also to those who are pure um, it's essential to land on that solid anchor that God is good. Um, so, so just listen, you're not, you're, you're not planning on what is coming this upcoming year. You're not planning on what you're going to face and what is upcoming this next year. You think you have the plan, but some of you are going to go through things that you're not planning on going through. So do you have this conviction that God is good? Do you have that settled in your mind? And he says, but as for me, so God is good. Here's the conviction. But then, to be honest, as for me, my feet, they'd almost slipped. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what is it that had almost caused him to stumble? What is it that had led his heart from this purity of heart? God is good, but something happened that was making me question that. I ask this because many times we're not even aware of where our hearts are leading us. We're unhappy. We're discontent. We want something to change or people to change or something else in our life to change. Could be work to change, or our finances to change, church to change. Um, all these different things, our family to change. And yet, it's our heart that's needing to be changed and be reoriented. <clears throat> he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's identifying with the fact that having these creeping thoughts that the arrogant seem to win it all, the wicked seem to live for sin and their own pleasure with no respect for God, and they're the ones who get all the rewards. Have you seen that? Have you experienced that? I remember when Jamie and I were in Tahlequah, and um, we were, uh, we'd, we'd planned on, we had really good plans, and God was supposed to go by these plans, and he didn't. And so at the, we were like, hey, we're going to be, you know, the, it'd be wise and smart. Let's wait five years to have kids. So then at the five-year point, or the four-year point, we decided to start having children. And then we went like 12 months and weren't able to. So month after month after month, 12 months of not being able to. Um, and I remember different people in our church would get pregnant, and like, you know, and, and then they would have the baby nine months later, 
and then go a, a few months more, and, and then now it's 24 months for us, and we're still not able to get pregnant. So you start noticing those families that weren't able to have kids, and you start kind of worrying about that. You feel like, what's wrong with us? You begin to wonder, is it because of my past? Is this sins from my past that now are coming up? And then someone who had had a baby, and you know, nine months later, they get pregnant again, and they have a second baby, and you still haven't had one. And now people, it's like you're going to, it's like Jamie would go to like, you know, like baby showers and like women are almost like afraid to like celebrate in front of her. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm pregnant again. I, I know it's bad. It's, it's, I'm, I'm just so sorry. And you're like, no, I, I want to celebrate with you. It, it, I, I'm happy for you. But there's this fear that what if this isn't allowed for us? And so 24 months, 36 months, it was like 33, 35 months before we were able to. And then, so then we finally get pregnant and then five days later, miscarriage. Man, God, I'm walking around Walmart, and I see this deadbeat dad. He looks like 21, and he's got five kids. I can't even figure out the math on this. No job. No plan. Definitely not leading his kids towards Christ. And here, here, here's what we would want to do with kids. And then you see sometimes uh, you're around people, the, the, the overachieving, successful dad who, you know, in the name of the Lord, you know, uh, we're going to prosper and leaves the wife and kids behind after going after his career, working 80, 90 hours a week for success so he can provide little princess all the expensive jeans and all the expensive shoes and all she wants is daddy. And he'll realize that when she's 14 or 21. Hey, that's not what I would do. God, do you see all this? Many of you have been through things like that. Careers, what is going on, God? Family situations, what is going on? It seems like they're doing all these evil things and they're just prospering. And where are you, God? Loss and hurt while others around you are enjoying sin and winning in life and it seems like you're just always losing. And notice the, the, the depth of the darkness that this actually reveals. If you slow down like the psalmist would want you to, to do, first, how most of us from time to time can identify with that statement, right? But think of the depth of darkness when an heir of heaven, a child of God, who has God in a covenant relationship, says, I was envious. It's a pretty bad thing, right? But what? I was envious of the wicked. What's that like as a loving Heavenly Father who's butchered your son? I had you, God, but I was envious of all that out there. I, I would give up all this if I just had that. So for a child of God to have that level of complaint, that level of discontent, I was envious of the wicked. Spurgeon says it's a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven should have to confess I was envious. But worse still that he would say I was envy, envious of the wicked. So I now realize, God, that I've been jealous and envious of people enjoying sin. The very thing that Christ came to die for. So some of you may need to just stop right there and that's, that's your altar call. You can bow your head and close your eyes. You don't need to listen to anything else. But just if that's the pattern, maybe that's all you need this morning. And you just to go, hey God, that's me. I confess, that's where, where my heart's at. For some, um, if you just pause to consider, maybe, maybe much of what you're doing in life, all you're doing, your time, your resources, your energy, your passion, you're just trying to compete with them. You're just wanting the things that they have. And here God has said, I've killed my son so that you could have me. That's good. You're good, but I really want all this. So sometimes that's what we're doing inside the church even. So this idea, does God really love me? If God does love me and sees all that I'm being kind of restrained from um, or all that I'm trying to do for him, sometimes that's what we're doing in the Christian circle. I'm trying to keep my list. I'm not, I won't even allow myself to enjoy ice cream because, you know, that'd be pleasurable. I won't allow myself to enjoy this or that because, God, I just want, do you see how much I love you? Do you see how much I love you? Or, God, I'm trying to do all this stuff for you. I want to do more and more for you. Just trying to earn his love. 
But all along, I'm doing all this, then how did this happen to me? Why did you let this happen? So the injury report that we, we kind of line up on is this idea of desertion from God. We're deserted by God. It's what many of us would say we feel. Um, we feel like God has deserted us or God is indifferent to us. We feel like God is maybe upset or angry or punishing us. Anyone ever have the silent treatment from a parent or the silent treatment from a spouse? And now we apply that human characteristic to God and it just feels like, I don't even know, but for some reason, it's just a silent treatment. Some people feel like they're living in the silent treatment of God for years and years and years. And that's exactly what we do in the silent treatment. We, we, we get busy. We're going to earn it. We're going to shoot. We're going to show you. We're going to prove it. We're going to get back, God, to where you're not in this silent treatment. We feel like God is willing to barely tolerate us. And that may be you. You know all the good doctrines. You know all the things about a church, the ecclesiology. But to be honest, you can't experience the love of God. He's just barely tolerating you because you're so pitiful. Just stupid. Doing it again and again and again. You failure. Just so stupid. That's not enjoyable Christianity, is it? You're not even being persecuted by the world. That, that, that's just your own looped thoughts. Repeated, repeated, repeated. Anyone ever feel that cold distance from God? Anyone ever feel like that, that cold distance was because of how much you failed him? Anyone ever overwhelmed with the idea that he is merely just tolerating you? What if your feelings and thoughts and beliefs are not accurate? What if that's just your feelings and thoughts and beliefs and they're not the truth of God, who God is? What if you haven't begun to live under the righteousness of Christ? What if you haven't learned to truly live out the new creation? That, that's the turning point that, that Asaph wants to bring us to. That's what the gospel message brings us to. So look at his false evaluation. I'm just buzz through these through 11. I, I want you to see, first of all, these two big things. Your perspective is influenced by what you see, and then also your perspective is influenced by what you hear. And this is us. So Asaph's talking about this, but this is us. Look in um, these verses. Notice the, the, the pronouns in 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. So, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness with hearts that overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Notice he's saying that not only are they doing these evil things in the world, their mouth goes against God. They say horrible things ab about God. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. So Asaph's being affected by what he sees and what he hears. And he even says in that last verse, I think it's verse 11 there, that the people surrounding the wicked, they're even looking on it and they're going back to them in support of them, joining them going like, it looks like God's not doing anything. It looks like they are the ones winning. Why not join with them? Those around him say, how can God know? Is there no knowledge in the most high? Those are the people that just surround them and find no fault in them. So we're influenced by what we see and what we hear. Where is God if he is against sin and evil? Because when I look at many po political situations across the world, it's clear, right? Um, this verse says that they wear their pride like, like a, like a uh, necklace, and their, their, their horrific crimes are like a garment. So what is, why did he use that language? First of all, um, people on, at that time, um, a necklace, you didn't see commoners having that. About 1% of people had necklaces then, right? And it would usually be of something made, unless it was made of like, you know, 
like horsehair or something. And so like to true have a, a gold necklace that was shining or a nice garment that was noticeable, who was that? That was the rich. That was the ones who were in positions of power. And he was saying, we see their violence. We see the way they treat people. We see the harm they do. They wear it proudly like an outside garment just walking around. And we've seen that. You see world leaders. You see politicians. You see um, uh, sometimes um, just brash um, uh, corporate people that just, just say, hey, the, the 10 of us in this room, we're going to make billions and we're going to do it on the backs of those people and we don't care, right? For, for decades, right? Sadly, we see it inside the church. You, you guys know that, that this idea in the, in the last 50 years has become for, for pastors to be celebrities. More cons- and, and some guys will just literally get up and say, hey, listen, uh, my dad didn't pay attention to me when I was little, and I'm really insecure. Um, I need you guys to go get more people. It fills me up, and I feel important. I feel like the special snowflake if we get lots of people here. I'm really weak and insecure. I'll promise you money and riches if you'll give more, and we can grow this thing big because I'm really insecure and have a little daddy syndrome, and I can't deal with that, and I need you guys to make me feel better about myself and they can do that like week one and three years later is like 10,000 people and then like they can continue to do it hey I want you guys to like me based on how much my shoes cost we're not worried about the people in Haiti who don't have shoes or Papua New Guinea who don't have the gospel or shoes but would anyone like to take some pictures with me and my shoes that's oppressive that, that's horrific, that, that would wear it like a garment. The things that we take pride in should be the things that, that were looked at as, that should not be envied at all. Those are sad, sad things. So, difficult things, but, but when you see these things going on, you hear these things, and you begin to evaluate this, here's what happens. We see it in verses 12 through 15. Sin switches the equation because you've been seeing these things and all of us admit we see those things going on. We hear those things going on. So how is it influencing you? Notice in 12 through 15. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So that's his summary statement. But, but notice his conclusion there. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I'd said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So notice what that leads Asaph to. Asaph, possibly like you or I, may not completely deny that God is somewhat good to us, but it sure does seem like God is really abundantly good to those who are wicked. Yeah, God's good to us. I'm thankful. But man, look what they've got. And Asaph's admitting that that's where my heart's going. My heart's seeing that. My heart's doing that, comparing. Asaph, in his frustrated state, looked at the ungodly and wicked and thought, that's the good life. Notice the switch of the equation. Wickedness, evil, equals prosperity, the true life. You see what happens? What you see and what you hear influences you to where you begin to believe the lie because the lie looks like it's true. Living against God for myself, for sin, that's where pleasure is. That's where true living lies. It's been in vain that I've done this. Man, I will say this. Assemblies of God, charismatics, um, uh, different church, Presbyterian, all these, it's our, they, they don't struggle with this. It's our circle's who tend to heap on more and more rules and more and more legalism, and then we're complaining so much about how, how, how in vain I'm doing all these things. It's frustrating. It's in vain that we're doing these things. Asaph gets a hold of that. First of all, sin switches the equation. What is sinful is now viewed as living the prosperous life. But then secondly, notice me keeping the rules, me keeping my heart clean. Notice his words there. Washing my hands in innocence has only led to continual daily pain and difficulty. All day I've been stricken, rebuked every morning. So think through how we handle that. 
In the church, we either do the same thing, we, we want to join them, or we hate and despise people. You ever see that? We very proud, self-righteous, like, oh, just, I can't believe they do those things. H horrific, that's pitiful. And we think that's the right godly answer, right? How do you know and how do you gauge whether you are actually enjoying holiness and pursuing God? Or if you're just angrily envious of all the fun and the rewards they're getting to live in. Do you have any kind of gauge or measurement to whether you are actually enjoying God and Christ and, and, and living for him? Or are you just really frustrated and angry because they get all the rewards? Their houses are better. Their lives are better. Their careers are better. Their, their, their wife is better. Their husband's better. Their kids are better. Are we aware of how envy and jealousy work at a heart level? You've heard me use that story many times of pulling up to the stoplight. I use the, the, the story of pull up the stoplight. My 04 Tahoe's got more blinking lights and uh, dashboard lights going off on it than a 747. And here, guys, pull up the guy in the 2021 you know, Chevy or, or Tundra. And so I always have the statement, God must really love him. And everyone kind of laughs like, oh, none of us would say that. But I, sometimes I don't think people understand that I'm connecting the dots. That's the fifth step. All I've done is taken the time to follow the logical conclusion to get to that point. So the first thought of, man, it really stinks what I have compared to that. Man, and I, I follow the connected dots to get to the point like, oh, really what I'm saying is, God, you love him and not me. Now, we wouldn't state it that way because we just barely notice our envy over here a little bit. If we even take the time to notice that we're envious. Again, we could just be the you know, self-righteous, like, I'm just angry. I just, I hate them. They're stupid. They're pitiful. I can't believe those people do that. And we think that's Christianity. But if, if you follow the dots and follow the discontentment, I'm using that exaggeration sense to make a point. And that's what many of us, if we would connect the dots, that's what we're doing. Step five is seeing the raw heart form that God does see. I see your complaint. Step two, step three, step four, step five. And now you've landed on the fact that God, you love him, but you don't really love me as much. So are you connecting those dots? So when I do that, you may think, oh, that's silly. Does Sankey really think that way? I'm worried about him. No, no, that's what all of us are doing with envy and complaint and bitterness. That's what God sees at the end, step five. All in vain. Notice this, his, his whole statement there. All in vain have I. All in vain have I. All in vain have I kept I'm the one who's kept. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed myself. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed myself and washed my hands in innocence. Let me connect the dots here to what God sees of that heart. When we come to Asaph's conclusion, God is saying this, I, I see your assessment and your efforts that you believe that you're the one who's doing it. You're the one who's kept your right, righteousness. You're the one who's washed yourself. You don't need a flippant savior. Step five, that's the heart that he sees. Go do it. Go do it. No wonder we get in such a uh, rabbit's wheel of trying to pretend and perform for him because that's at a very heart level. And God could blast us with that. Lay your righteousness out on the table. Lay your righteousness out on the table and let's measure up and see what you've done. Let's see how good you can hold to this. Where were you when I built this type of ocean? Where were you when I did this? All the stuff that he brings out to Job. He could blast us for that, but does he? But does he allow you for 
two months or two years or 20 years to have this self-righteous heart that's always laying out this complaint about all I've done, all I've done. It's been in vain that I've done all these things. It's been in vain. It's just wasted that I do all these things. Don't you see how they're winning and we're still losing? Just complaint after complaint after complaint. Can't you see what I've done? No need for a savior. We don't see it that way. So God could handle our being influenced and intrigued by sin very differently. So just be careful when our hearts begin to go that way. Be aware of how envy and jealousy actually work at a heart level and what it's screaming at God. So you're seeing and you're hearing this. Sin switches the equation. So, so what's needed? Look in verses 16 through 20. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It seemed overwhelming until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned therein so notice the changing point all these thoughts I'm seeing all these things I'm hearing all these things here's my feelings here's what I'm experiencing I'm so discontent the world is winning and pursuing sin and pursuing evil and and those of us who are trying to keep your rules God it's not fair it's not working out it seems like you're against us and you're for them until I went into the sanctuary of God. And so what he's talking about there is going to where God's word is the thing that renews him. God's word is the changing point when he gets God's perspective. So, so far, he's been listening to other voices. He's been hearing other voices. He's been seeing things that are speaking into his life. He's been, been being influenced by those things. Yet God was not speaking into that for him. He was not allowing God to speak into the situation. So how many of us, have something going on right now in our life, things going on in our life right now that you would say, I don't really know if I'm allowing God's word to speak into that situation right now. Maybe I've got Asaph's heart. Maybe I'm comparing and envious and complaining. So sin switches the equation and then we, we, we start having the chance to hear and remember God's word when he sees these things, it seemed wearisome and impossible, pointless to figure out how this could be so. It seems as if enjoyable, sinful gain will continue unchecked for the wicked until Asaph gains God's perspective when he went into the sanctuary of God. He now is hearing truth from God. So you see where God's word trumps what he's hearing from other people, what he's seeing in the world around him, and what he's feeling internally. So God's word is trumping and being the dictator to your feelings, to what you're seeing and what you're hearing. And that's the changing thing. So all that stuff may be going on. What needed to change was Asaph's heart. It was all the way over there screaming at God, I'm doing all this on my own and you're not doing crap. And God's going, oh, that's not the case at all. You need new perspective. They're not winning. They're facing eternal judgment forever. So if you notice what happens in those next verses, what he says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. we have a tendency to see all these things and not take into consideration what God is trying to do in our own heart and what God is trying to do through us. And if we spend all of our time looking at those things, seeing those things, uh, having that type of heart like Asaph has, we miss out on what God is actually doing. So when we've been talking about spiritual warfare, when you're at 36 months of a church plant, it's easy to talk about all the things that we don't have, or all the things that we, we want to be doing, or all the, the, the difficulties, or how awkward it is, and how this is bad, and how this is bad. In the middle of that, our heart is just focused on that instead of, hey, so what do I know God has called me to in faithfulness? What, what do I need to be doing in faithfulness? Just like we ended the book of Daniel those last two or three weeks. All of a sudden, for Asaph, there's no envy anymore. It's a scary reality. And Jonathan Edwards said this, there's nothing that keeps wicked people 
at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Nothing that keeps wicked, lost people out of hell any moment but the mere pleasure of God. So we see here with this change, now we should be halted and respected and in reverence of what God has done for us in the gospel, but also it brings out our responsibility. Am I just ticked off and envious of those people? Envious of what they get to do? Ticked off because I'm not getting to do it? Or am I broken going, God, why me? Why did you save me? And how do we get the gospel to them? Instead of being frustrated, I can't believe they do this. Oh, they sicken me with this. They are pitiful. No, we need to see them as lost and separated from God, just like we were. And we need to go to them with the gospel. Um, Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. In 2 Peter, he says, don't, don't consider the Lord's um, slowness um, to be something that you just kind of take for granted. But God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. So when we look around and see the world around us, we should be going, God, how are, you, how are you being so patient instead of, why are you letting them have everything that I want? God, why are, how are you so patient with people that are just slapping you in the face? In Matthew 7, 12 through 14, the one thing I would want someone to do would be to share this eternity-shaping truth of me. Um, so this is the famous you know, um, golden rule in verse 12 there, chapter 7. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So, so we kind of take that like Jesus is teaching like little set-apart parables. He's saying that in the context in his mind of the next sentence. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. The great majority are in the wide path. And it is so easy to walk Asaph along that path. It's so easy and comfortable and seems pleasurable. Many, many are on the wide path, but it leads to destruction. The narrow path, enter through the narrow gate. Only a few find it. It's difficult and hard. So listen, for for some of you sitting here today, have you entered through the, the sacred narrow gate? Christ. Or are you walking in the broad, easy path of destruction that the majority are walking on? That Jesus seems to say, that's why many are going to perish. In the last verses there, he says, in verse 21, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, God. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and the portion of my heart. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So notice the switch there in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked, I was brutish and ignorant towards you. He confesses that to God. So you're seeing this change happen. You're seeing confession. You're seeing conviction over sin, the way my heart was. And then you're seeing repentance, change And notice what happens. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Look at the steps that happen here. He first of all has communion. I am continually with you, God, versus what he had said earlier. It's in vain that I do all this. In vain what? Oh, in vain because you're not getting the stuff you wanted. Remember verse 1? God is good. God is good if I get what I want. God is good if my family turns out like I want. God is good if our finances go the way I want. God is good if I have all these rewarding relationships in life. 
God is good if I get what I want. And so here he's, he was saying, in vain did I do all this stuff. Oh, you were doing it because you wanted that stuff. Just like in prodigal God that we're going to look at, the older brother in, in, in Luke chapter 15. He wasn't happy with God himself. He was wanting all the things that the younger brother wanted also. So he has communion. I'm continually with you, with you, Father, versus what he had said at first. And then intimacy. He says, you hold my right hand versus what he had said earlier. I'm stricken every morning. Think of the heart change there. Do you view yourself as close and loved by God or do you view it every morning just stricken, miserable, silence of God? He was guided and shepherded. You give me your counsel versus I was foolish and ignorant, God. Do you see the goodness of God here? Do you see the switch that happens, the different perspective? Then the eternal life of God's presence. You will receive me to glory versus my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped and I would have ended up just like the wicked who are you going to punish eternally. So, where do you find yourself this morning? Are, are you in a heart place like Asaph? Are you seeing and hearing and listening to and experiencing this idea that all the wicked, they're the ones that have the real life, the good life? Or is your heart frustrated with God because he's allowing in his patience and forbearance, his patience with sinners, desiring that they would come to repentance? Are you that frustrated Christian who just masks our envy with, oh, they make me sick. They make me sick. I can't believe they... That's not a heart of compassion, wanting to get the gospel to them. So as we transition, um, let me give us a couple minutes to um, pray and respond to the Lord. Think through where your heart is at as we transition into the Lord's Supper. Um, very weighty, difficult thing. Psalm 73 brings out uh, a sitting place where most of us have experienced that. And like I said, he wants us to walk through that process to recognize some things for the Holy Spirit to, to open our eyes to see what God sees at a heart level for us. So I want to give you a few moments to respond before we go to the Lord's Supper.